Let's just pray before we begin. Father God, speak to us through your word and deepen our understanding. Set our hearts on fire with your love so that we'll want to live holy, godly lives for you in this world. Amen. Be holy because I am holy. I wonder how you felt when you heard those words from God in our passage tonight. What was your gut response? Be holy because I am holy. You may have thought, I can never be holy as God is holy. I know that's just impossible. God's setting the bar way too high, like the Olympic high jump. I can never be holy like that. There's no point in me even trying. Or you may have thought, I know I'm not holy, but I just need to try harder to live a good life. I need to summon up greater willpower. I need to give it more effort. Or perhaps you heard it and thought, oh no, I wish I'd stayed at home tonight. I'm just going to go away feeling guilty and condemned. Well, I'd just like to assure you that's certainly not the intention. Over the next few weeks at the Seven, we're going to be looking at the important subject of godly living. And we're going to be considering some specific aspects like what we watch on TV and online and what we say in social media. But the aim of this first sermon is really to understand the underlying biblical principles that underpin a right understanding of the whole subject of holiness and godly living and to highlight some of the common pitfalls. Before we get into the passage, I just want to set the context because it's always important to do that. We can gather from verse one that this letter was written by Peter to the Christians scattered throughout the Roman provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia in a region known as Asia Minor, which would now be modern-day Turkey. And we know that the letter was written to Christians living in a pagan world who were suffering persecution for their faith. The Apostle Paul also wrote to the Christians in Galatia, and his letter gives us a real insight into the moral climate of the culture of the time. And he says this, the acts of the flesh are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. Paul describes a type of behaviour that characterises the flesh, the sinful nature, and he mentions sexual immorality. That means any sexual activity outside heterosexual marriage. He speaks of debauchery. That's really what we describe in our culture as wild partying, overindulging in sex, drugs, alcohol. Just take a look at that list for a moment and ask yourself, is our modern culture that different? I'm not recommending you watch Love Island, but just want to comment here in passing that TV programmes like Love Island and many current dramas and films characterise what is perceived to be acceptable moral behaviour in our culture. 
And we need to be aware that what we watch can influence our thinking and consequently our behaviour. We'll hear more about that next week. But for tonight, let's look with me at 1 Peter 1, 13 to 21 to start with. It's on page 1217 of the Church Bibles. Do keep your Bibles open. The passage begins, Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. Before Peter starts to speak about Christian living, he begins, therefore, referring back to what he said earlier in the letter about the wonders of salvation in Jesus Christ. And then he tells them and us, prepare your minds for action, be alert and self-controlled, get your mind and thinking sorted out and set your mind on the hope of grace, on the future reality that one day Christ will return in glory. In some ways, that verse is a bit similar to our verse for the year at Holy Trinity, Hebrews 12, 2, let us fix our eyes on Jesus. And that hope that Peter speaks about is not a wishful thinking kind of hope, like, I hope that England will win the Six Nations. It's a certainty. It's a firm reality. It's not something that might happen and might not. It's a certainty that one day Jesus will return and as Christians will be there and it will be glorious. Set your minds on that. Peter then goes on to say, as obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. Again, that verse is very similar to one written by Paul, Romans 12 too. Do not conform to the pattern of this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. We're not to feel that we have to conform to the sinful way of life we may have lived before we became a Christian, nor do we have to conform to the way of life we see in the culture around us. The way to counter that pressure to conform is by allowing God to transform and renew our minds. And then we come to that verse that's really at the heart of what we're considering tonight. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. It's a verse that throws up all sorts of questions. And the first is, what does it really mean to be holy? It means that God is completely morally pure. He's distinct from all else. And because of that complete moral purity, he has to be separate from all that's sinful. And because God is holy, we, his people, are to be holy too. It's not like we've got to necessarily attain that 100% holiness of God, but we're to imitate and reflect God's holy character. And that phrase, be holy because I am holy, comes from the Old Testament, from Leviticus 11, when God called the Israelites to live in a different way from the culture around them. In Canaan, where they'd settled, they were to follow God alone, 
and keep the commandments, but sadly they failed. Throughout their history, they turned to other gods, they failed to follow God's law, they failed to be holy. So the really sticky question that follows is, how is it any way possible that we can be holy? Paul tells us in Romans 3 that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The answer is in Christ and in the gospel message that's so beautifully described here. It's verses 18 to 21, if you're following in your Bibles. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Through him you believe in God who raised him from the dead and glorified him, and so your faith and your hope are in God. The Christians who received this letter from Peter would have understood what it meant for a slave to be redeemed. If someone paid a slave's master a substantial sum of money, they could be redeemed and set free. And Peter draws that parallel, saying that they were redeemed from the empty way of life they'd previously known, not with money, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ, who gave up his life as the ultimate sacrifice for sin. He was like a lamb without blemish or defect because he lived a completely sinless life. And we can be redeemed from that empty way of life, saved by believing in Christ, who gave his life for us and rose again from the dead. That is the glorious gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. The trouble for those The the real problem for those Christians in Asia Minor was that they'd come to believe in Jesus, but they didn't see any need to behave differently as a result. They were acting with an attitude that I'm going to call cheap grace. It's an attitude that says, I believe in Christ and I know I'm saved, but I don't really need to obey God or follow his teaching in the Bible. He accepts me just as I am, and he wants me to be myself. So it doesn't really matter how I live, does it? That attitude is completely wrong, because the grace of God isn't cheap. If you look back at verse 18, it says, You were redeemed with the precious blood of Jesus. You were set free from sin because Jesus paid the ultimate price with his life. And that's not something to be treated lightly or taken for granted. Those early Christians were guilty of falling into that pitfall and it's a trap we can so easily fall into ourselves. But there's another trap we can fall into and that's what I'm going to call legalism. The Jewish leaders and the Pharisees had that kind of legalistic approach. Jesus criticised them for it because they followed the law meticulously but they were far from God in their hearts and their motives. And we can so easily fall into that way of thinking, I just need to try harder to live a holy life. If I obey God and his teaching in the Bible, then surely he'll love me more, won't he? 
The problem with that approach is that we're believing that somehow God's love is conditional on us doing the right thing. It's salvation by works. And, And the truth of the gospel is we're not saved by our works, but by believing in Jesus who's already done all that was necessary. You might want to think about whether you tend to fall into either of those pitfalls, cheap grace or legalism. Have a think about that. Let's move on to those verses that were read from chapter two of Peter's letter. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Wow, what a verse that is. In the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant, the Israelite people were God's chosen people. But now under the New Covenant, brought in by Jesus, Christian people are God's chosen people, the holy nation, a people belonging to God. And notice that Peter doesn't say one day, you'll be a chosen people, a holy nation. The implication is that you are those things right now, therefore live in a way that reveals who you are. I think we can understand that concept from the world of sports. I wouldn't claim to be any expert on rugby, but I've been interested to hear rugby commentators say things like, this is the best team in the world at the moment, And they really believe they're the best team in the world. From the first whistle, they play in a way that demonstrates that level of belief. So what they believe in their minds and their hearts uh, affects their actions on the field. And in the same way, if we really get it in our minds and our hearts that God is holy, and Jesus died on the cross, a costly death for our sin, then surely that should make a difference to how we live. So in the light of that inspirational description, how are we God's people to live? Peter says this, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage against your soul. Peter said we're to abstain from those sinful desires and behaviour that's the norm in our culture and live as foreigners or exiles. We're to be in the world, but not of the world. We're not to separate ourselves totally from modern life, as some Christians have done, like the Amish community in the USA. But we're to consider this isn't really our permanent home. We live here for now, but our real home is in heaven with Christ. And Peter goes on to say, live good, such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. If you live a godly, holy life, That will be the most incredible witness to those who are not yet believers. 
when I was preparing this week, I was reminded of a young woman who's a friend of our family. She went to university and got really involved in the Christian Union and a good church in her first year. She was offered a place to live in a flat with other girls, other um, girls that were doing her course who weren't Christian. Uh, She was offered a place in a a flat with um, Christians from her church. And she actually turned that down in order to uh, share a flat with other girls who were not Christians, who were doing the same course as her. Now, they were into wild partying and bringing back people to the flat for casual sex and all of that. And she chose to live there and live a godly, holy life among them. What an amazingly courageous thing to do. And I don't know what those other girls thought about her choice to live differently, but what an amazing witness. And the reason that that young woman made that choice was because she loved Jesus and she wanted to live a life of obedience that would demonstrate that love. It's a reality that if we truly love Jesus, then we'll want to obey him and the teaching of the Bible. The verse that most clearly shows it is in John 14. We had it just a few weeks ago at the seven. Jesus replied, if anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. My father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. Do you see that? If we love Jesus, we will want to obey his teaching. If we're truly thankful for all Jesus has done for us, then that obedience will naturally flow out of that love and gratitude. Belief that really affects us at a heart level leads to changed lives and obedience. If we go back to that beautiful verse, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, notice that it also says that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. It made me think of a diamond. Diamonds need to be cut, polished and cleaned. If you shine a bright light on a properly prepared diamond, the light shines through it in the most amazing way, showing all sorts of beautiful patterns and colours. In the same way, if we're dirtied by the world, we can't shine for God. But if we keep ourselves holy and clean, then the light of his holiness can shine in us and through us. So in the light of what we've heard, tonight. How should we respond? I want to suggest we do well to let our minds dwell on the holiness of God, the wonder of the gospel and God's call to us to be holy, to be a holy nation, his special possession. The right response is surely one of gratitude, deep gratitude and love. And another right response is for us to examine our own hearts. 
We've already confessed our sins tonight in the confession, but is there a recurring sin that we keep on doing, something that we keep falling into? Or is there a sinful lifestyle choice we need to change or a relationship that isn't honouring to God? If our hearts are full of love for God and thankfulness, then our loving response must surely be to reflect the light of his holiness in this dark world. I'm going to suggest we have a short time of silence now to give us a chance to reflect on what we've heard and ask God to reveal anything that's in your life that perhaps needs change, maybe a recurring sin, maybe a lifestyle choice. Let's just be quiet for a moment and allow the Holy Spirit to speak to each one of us. Father God, thank you for calling us to be a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, your own special possession. Help us to be holy because you are holy. Fill our hearts with love and thankfulness. And give us the courage to live for you and to reflect your holiness in the world. Amen.